to live mindfully, staying present in the moment, avoiding judgments. An observational skill highly critical to successful emotional healing and recovery. For this episode of Through the Trees, we go deeper into concepts of mindfulness with John Hardman, one of the clinicians of CEDAR. We talk about introductory and advanced concepts of mindfulness training. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for CEDAR in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the CEDAR Addiction Treatment Podcast. So today we are sitting down in uh, one of the uh, very nice locations at our program at Cedar called the Lori Wolf House. Uh, the Lori Wolf House um, is uh, here a little bit for historical reasons. Uh, when the Anschutz Medical Campus was a, a prior to it being a military base, it actually was a very large farmland, and this was the original kind of homestead, if you will, of that uh, that whole space. We keep it around and we use it for a few different of the kind of more technical offices. It's really quite peaceful. And um, so I think that that is a wonderful segue to what we're talking about today. I'm sitting down with John Hardman. John is one of the primary clinicians and counselors that we have at CEDAR. And we're going to talk about one of the teaching and therapeutic tools we use a lot at this program, which is mindfulness training. And we're, we're kind of going to go uh, pretty deep into this. How do we define mindfulness? What distinguishes it from some sort of meditation? And how do we embrace it in clinical care? So, uh, John, thank you f- uh, very much for sitting down with me and having this discussion. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so, John, uh, tell me a little bit of uh, your role here at CEDAR and uh, your responsibilities. Yeah, so I'm one of the primary counselors. Um, I work with mostly men. Uh, I work in the men's program. And um, uh, my, my role varies from um, individual therapy and counseling to group therapy. Also, of course, um, work with some of the lectures that we do here and present some of those and um, I um, you know fill in for various groups and and involved with the professionals program as well I think we always it's useful reminding our listeners that care at Cedar is very multidisciplinary and that means there's a lot of different people involved this is a core theme of our podcast is showcasing a lot of the different people that are working with patients in the treatment program. And so, John, your role involves a brief psychotherapy for patients, the case management of their, their case as a whole, the assessment. Do, do I have that right? Yeah, the assessment, evaluation, um, helping patients to learn coping skills um, is a big part of my role here. Um, yeah. So today we're going to go pretty deep into the concept of mindfulness. 
How do we define this? What, John, do you have a kind of a way you would introduce a patient to the topic of mindfulness and what it is? Yeah, so I, you know, we tend to define mindfulness as a set of skills that helps us to be a little more present with our body and mind. We are tend to be a fairly distracted group of people, and um, that distraction a lot of time takes away from us kind of uh, working on ourselves and working on some of our internal problems and uh, making changes. So mindfulness is a tool that helps us to kind of come into the moment, be more aware of our body and our mind and, and what's happening internally. Is mindfulness um, very uh, similar to what I think of as meditation? I know I, I'm imagining monks or uh, kind of Eastern philosophy people and this uh, a chant and a kind of meditating and being transcendental. Yeah. Uh, is that what this is? Yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot of people associate um, meditation with kind of a spiritual practice. And but I think more and more in our society, meditation is uh, seen a lot more as a secular practice that's a lot of times used for stress reduction um, and for kind of um, just working with their with our mind and body. Um, typically, people think of meditation as a formal sitting practice where they might use mindfulness as part of that. But mindfulness itself can be a whole set of skills that can be used both in a formal um, sitting type practice and in our daily lives. So mindfulness actually is a bigger, more useful set of things than just the uh, what's included with a meditation practice. So it, it sounds like there is a, a learned skill component to mindfulness. Is this something that you can practice or that you can kind of hone for yourself? Yeah, certainly it is a, a learned skill. Um, and a lot of times it does start with some real basic like um, breathing practices where um, we ask a person to sit quietly for a few minutes, um, take their um, attention off of their thinking, and focus more on something kind of neutral like their breath. What do we find with the people that we work with at Cedar? Is, is that often quite difficult for people? Yeah. <clears throat> so people who have addictions, they, they often uh, struggle with being really attached to a set of like distorted thoughts, right? So um, the nature of addiction is that we become quite defensive and we get habituated into thinking in certain patterns in certain ways and those things actually keep us quite stuck. And so um, the mindfulness practice is meant to help us to kind of undo that a little bit, um, practice um, being a little more aware of what's happening both with our body and in our in our mind so that maybe we can see that a little bit and, and make some shifts and some changes. So John, this is perfect. We are here at the, uh, the Anschutz Medical Complex and we hear, uh, I'm hearing sirens kind of mayhem outdoors as we're trying to do our radio show. Yeah. This seems like a wonderful avenue of kind of mindfulness real time. <laughs> Like the, all the all the noise that we experience in our day to day life, and are we able, even amidst that, to be able to stay quite present 
in where it is, whatever we're doing. Yeah, that's um, that's a big part of this, right? We're, you know, we live in a culture and a society where <clears throat> distraction is more commonplace than actually being focused. Um, and we have a huge amount of distractions in our world. <clears throat> so developing a set of skills that helps us to be more focused internally, having attention on ourselves and what we're doing um, in our own minds is very very useful skill. Okay. Sounds like we've got a basic sense of what this is. Staying present in the moment, avoiding judgmentalism, a, a useful skill to embrace, and especially a useful skill for people in early recovery to embrace. That's why we teach it here yeah. at Cedar. So, John, if you were sitting down with somebody who were interested in learning this, and said that they, they sought out your services and they wanted to build up their mindfulness skill set. How would you start with somebody like this? Yeah, I would, um, I certainly start patients uh, oftentimes sitting down and just practicing um, breathing. A lot of patients, a lot of us, we don't even notice throughout the day, but the way we breathe is actually very important. A lot of times when we're worked up, when we're distressed, we breathe from our chest. It's very tight. Um, it's very short uh, breaths. And we actually start learning to do more of a diaphragmatic breath, which um, helps a person to relax quite a bit, open up into their abdomen and breathe more deeply. And it's, it's just a very basic skill, but it, it's amazing physiologically how it actually works um, with our brain. And we feel uh, quite a bit more space and open when we just start breathing a little more effectively. Interesting. I know, I know that that is a very common skill that's taught by a lot of therapists, uh, learning some basic breathing techniques. Can you give even some specifics? Like what are some of the traits, if you were to teach somebody mindful breathing, what are some of the things to look for? Um, yeah, mindful breathing what I, I do is I usually walk a person through this very quietly in a kind of quiet setting so that they can focus. And I ask them to just start noticing that they're breathing as a first step. And usually quite naturally, once a person focuses on their breath, they start to slow down and take deeper breaths. And so I kind of point that out to them that, you know, just by sitting here and focusing on your breath, you're breathing more slowly, you're breathing deeper, and you seem to be, you know, more relaxed and more present. So yeah, we can actually see actual physio physiological changes just by breathing more slowly and more focused. Oh, so, so very fascinating. Even just through drawing their attention to their breath and having them explore it briefly on their own, it's, it has a calming effect. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with racing thoughts and thoughts that are very disturbing to them. And they get very caught in that thinking and trying to fix it all the time. And so what we do is we take the focus off the thinking and we focus on something a lot more neutral and a lot more present like the breathing. So with the breathing component, are you teaching people ways to kind of take control of their breathing in a way or what do we do? Um, yeah, I suppose there's a sense of controlling the breathing. It um, really starts out by just noticing it. And um, I think there is a way that our mind 
naturally starts to take more control, slows it down, and, and a person feels quite a bit better. So there seems to be a goal of slowing down the breathing. Is that a, a stress reduction? Yeah, I think by slowing the breathing down, breathing more effectively, which means kind of breathing more deeply into the lungs, and there's also the sensation of actually feeling the breath come in and out of the body, which has a calming effect on us. So are there other examples of learning some really brief mindfulness with our bodies, with our, our physical selves? Yeah. <clears throat> Another um, one of the skills that we work with here is body scanning. Body scanning is a process where we start out probably with some breathing and uh, slowing our breath down, breathing more deeply, focusing more on the breath. And then we might turn to the body and start with, say, the head, top of the head, and, and just kind of notice the top of our heads. You know, what does that feel like? Well, I'm running around all day. I don't really think about the top of my head. But as soon as I focus on it a little bit, I start to relax. And then I can work down and maybe relax the muscles in my face and then chest and go all the way through the body and start systematically relaxing different muscles and letting the tension go. Well, so very interesting. Even So, John, I'm even imagining this. As we sit here today, I'm, I'm visualizing the top of my head, and it is, it's an interesting experience. That I know that sounds a little bit hokey, I guess, but um, <laughs> it does have a common quality. Like You don't ever think of some of these very subtle things uh, in your body, because we, we have so much on our mind. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's really true. It makes us a lot more sensitive to the subtle sensations in our body. We become much more aware of them, and they're happening all the time. Um, like lots of things in our life are happening all the time around us, but we're on automatic pilot, kind of just flying right past a lot of our life. And so we slow down in this practice. We focus on things that maybe we wouldn't be so focused on, and we notice things about our body and mind that are happening that we wouldn't normally see in our normal everyday life. So is there some uh, link between mindfulness practice and attention to detail yeah certainly um, mindfulness practice actually lets us look at details that we normally would not see and this is where we get a lot more application to addiction treatment and and lots of um, treatment for lots of different uh, challenging disorders <clears throat> a lot of times people who have addictions have trouble even being aware of what the triggers uh, might be in their environment, in their own minds, in their own bodies. So this is one of the kind of key features of this skill, is that we help people slow down and actually become more aware of what's happening you know, inside their own body, around them, in their environment. Okay, so very good. So we start with some really basic, tangible things for a person. Mindfulness around their breath, some mindfulness around what we call a body scan. We mentioned the top of the head. I'm sure uh, we would move, what, face, shoulders, kind of moving down our body. And then trying to find ways that this could be useful in their overall recovery. Kind of like moving it from, uh, I don't know, would you say moving it from concrete to abstract? 
<clears throat> well, yeah, certainly I think it's moving from a kind of fixed mind or a fixed way of seeing things to maybe becoming a lot more objective about their own, about our own thinking in our own bodies. You know, we have this unique quality, Pat. <clears throat> Humans, we think, have this unique quality that we think animals don't have, which is we can actually think about our own thinking. Mm, yes. Yeah. And so that's a really powerful tool. The problem is that I think that most of us don't sit down and take the time to actually notice that I can observe my own thought patterns. So we're so busy and distracted in our lives, we just don't do that. Well, when a person is caught in a problem like addiction, a disease that you know involves the way they think about the world, um, it could be very beneficial to slow down and say, hey, you know, is the way I'm seeing this, is the way I'm seeing the world really working for me? And to be able to kind of observe that, their process non-judgmentally in themselves creates a lot of insight. Yeah, very interesting. So, and then I guess there would be some of your pathways to change. Like if you could observe patterns, then you could own them and maybe make some make some difference yeah. in them, in, in changing your life as a whole. Do you, I, I wonder if people who find it hard to change, do they oftentimes get hung up on some of these things? Yeah, I think particularly um, I like to tell patients that they're caught in their own story. And what I mean by that is <clears throat> we have this ongoing dialogue about our own who we are, my own story. I'm an addict or I'm um, not a very good person or I'm a failure in life. Um, people get so caught and fused in their own story that they really start to believe that. And um, mindfulness is really a way that we can slow this down, see that these are just thoughts, they're kind of a neutral um, object to begin with, and that, you know, maybe I don't have to buy into that so much anymore, and maybe I can look at buying into, you know, different ways of seeing the world. Yeah. I know we, we have spoken before on this podcast about CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, and a lot of that does involve looking at thoughts. Yeah. Does this tend to lead well into somebody doing more CBT, almost like you, you train and build up some mindfulness strength, and then you bridge that into some other therapies that you could be doing? Yeah, I, um, I think they work really well together. Um, I think actually they're quite synergistic, um, mindfulness-based cognitive um, work and cognitive behavioral therapy. And I often say that uh, mindfulness really looks at process in the mind, where CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, looks at content. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. So yeah. that, that's, that's the content. But mindfulness is the core process. My, mindfulness kind of looks at how my, how my think, thinking comes up. And, you know, people become quite fused, we say, fused with their thoughts. They become really entangled with them. So it's really hard to change something that I buy into so much. And so what mindfulness does, is it's kind of a setup to help untangling or diffusing from thinking and believing that it's all some real solid process. It becomes, it starts to make the mind a lot more flexible, 
and uh, open. I, I mean, I can't help but uh, think of other metaphors. I'm, I'm imagining we're here in this uh, pretty old school house, and I guess the house has its bones, I guess, if you will, its walls, but there's also plenty of things in the house, the furniture, the carpeting, uh, some of this. All of that can be changed. I don't know. I've had, I've had patients who they see that their, their house or their person is fixed. It, yeah. Instead of there's plenty of things in you, i.e. your thoughts, that we could adjust. We, we, could, we could put some pressure on it. We could change them. Yeah. How do, where do we hit a wall with this, though? People seem very attached to their current way of thinking. Yeah, that's really the crux of this is the attachment. It's not that the thinking is such a problem. It's that the tie to the thinking is so strong, the bond. It's that I've been buying into my thinking for so long that I actually believe it's this very solid, unchangeable thing. Um, so that's what we're really trying to change is maybe the attachment to the couch. Instead so of saying, well, maybe we could put a different couch in this room or we could move that couch to a different room, do something different. Okay. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. So, uh, John, can you uh, tell us a little bit about some of your experience with patients here, uh, of people that use this quite well? Are there, are there ways in which patients use mindfulness in their everyday life? Yeah, um, I work with a lot of patients. I'm particularly thinking about a patient recently who um, struggled with a lot of suicidal thoughts throughout his time in treatment. He had been uh, challenged by uh, this type of thinking for many years. And um, we were able to actually sit down, do some breathing, and make some progress in learning these mindfulness skills and he was really able to kind of uh, diffuse that thinking and find different ways of seeing the world and different ways that he could work with his own mind. Did he have any sort of experience learning some things like this before? Or was this kind of a new, a new experience for him? Yeah, for this individual it was completely new. And he actually was here with us through our extended care program. So he was here for 90 days which made a big difference. It uh, gave us a lot of time to work with um, his practice and start applying it to many different areas of his life. And then he was able to take that out from here and use it in his relapse prevention plan when he moved into the community. So uh, comment on this uh, a little bit. We can use mindfulness skills to help prevent relapse on substances? Yeah, so one of the things that we do here, we actually um, have a formalized mindfulness-based uh, relapse prevention program in our um, extended care program where patients are able to train extensively on relapse prevention skills by using mindfulness as kind of the basic, basic uh, vehicle for doing that. So can you say a little bit more on this? It's called, called Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention? Yeah, Mindfulness-Based rela Relapse Prevention um, is a program that was kind of an offshoot of the very popular 
um, program that many people have heard of by John Kabat-Zinn, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program. Um, there were some very um, smart people that took the principles of that program and applied it towards addiction and um, recovery and um, kind of formalized that into a, a program that could be presented and taught to clients. That almost uh, like a manualized approach? Is there a book? Uh, there is a book, get? yeah. Yeah, there's a book. There's a workbook. And, um, I, you know, there's, of course, an instruction manual and that type of thing for, for learning to uh, teach the program. For clinicians. For clinicians, yes. Um, so very interesting. So we actually, uh, mindfulness became a more of a used clinical tool in therapy or any sort of behavioral health care. And then it's kind of grown in traction to the point of very, uh, we would call them evidence-based models. So you said something called mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based relapse prevention. So these are, this is where experts took these practices and honed them, I guess. Right, right. I think that um, mindfulness-based relapse prevention was a program that was created I, I think in the middle mid 70s and early 80s um, and it kind of gained traction because a lot of people actually were able to use that to treat things like chronic pain and they were able to <clears throat> reduce their use of opiate medications and learn to be with their pain and function quite well even though they had pain by using this program and I think psychologists really started looking at that and saying what is this skill you know why is it why does that work so well? And that really gained traction, and the community went in and did a lot of research and work with it and found that it's probably one of the most useful skills that we're able to teach people today. Now, I'm aware of some research that has looked at of people who really practice mindfulness, and this may be on a daily, uh, daily mindfulness exercise. We mentioned things like breathing, a body scan that over time they will actually have some neurologic change in their brain. Their, the brain seems maybe a little bit more calm and also some improvement in the front part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's so important for addiction health or people healing. The front part of the brain is responsible for comp controlling impulses yeah. and uh, organizational ability. We have a lot of patients who struggle with the front part of the brain. So this, this research really looked at, through engaging in, in mindfulness, you could actually change some of your neurophysiology. That was pretty powerful. Yeah, well, when they do imaging studies and they look at people who um, <clears throat> have addictions and they show triggers, they can see certain parts of the brain light up and become very active and so forth. And when they take a person who has some mindfulness skills and they do these similar imaging and they ask them to meditate or practice mindfulness, they can actually see that that part of the brain calms down and slows down and the, the colors go down and become a lot softer. The, that part of the brain actually starts to kind of become um, more sedate and more, more calm. So th this is more than just therapist or clinician opinion. There's actually some imaging and neuroscience proof that mindfulness helps people heal. Yeah, I think at this point we have quite a bit of data to back this up. In fact, 
<clears throat> I think there was a study at Harvard a few years ago that really showed that, you know, the brain can change both in function and actually in appearance um, by, by practicing this. Well, very fascinating. If our listeners wanted to read some more about this, if they wanted to expand their knowledge or maybe consider embracing some uh, sort of mindfulness-based training on their own, where would you guide them? Yeah, well, there's lots of resources out there. Um, I think one of the places you can go first off is your phone and go to your apps. There are a number of really good apps out there. The one that comes to mind is Calm. There's a number of really good apps that you can use to walk you through some daily mindfulness practices and some short one to two minute check-ins and all the way up to like a 30 minute um, extensive body scan. Oh, so there, there's a wonderful irony on this. I seem to be so horribly distracted by my phone as <laughs> it. So you're, you're saying we can actually use uh, smartphones to actually turn turn it on its head and actually build some mindfulness skills through that. Yeah, we can actually use that darn thing for something really productive like um, becoming present and, and actually uh, becoming more stress-free. <laughs> well, very interesting. Um, so I guess to summarize a little bit of what we're talking about today, I'm sitting down with John Hardman. Uh, John is one of the primary counselors at the CEDAR program. Uh, mainly works with men, but you also you 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 help manage uh, our professionals track as well. Is yeah, that right. So you will work with, and when we say professionals, that means medical professionals, nurses, physicians, pharmacists, uh, attorneys, different people who have licensure. Executives sometimes. Issue. Yes. I think it's important to to stress that that we have that. I I am sure that those professionals probably need some of the greatest mindfulness building of all. Oh, absolutely. This is something that can be used in every part of your life. I mean, <clears throat> there isn't a pr professional out there who doesn't deal with stress and doesn't want to slow down and take so have have a way to kind of reduce their stress throughout their day. So um, we use this um, at all levels of treatment here and. Um, especially with the professionals and developing back-to-work plans and maybe how is my day going to look from now on? How can I function differently to kind of reduce my stress and re reduce the triggers in my life? Well, perfect. And then we, we threw out some of the, the more technical terms for any sort of listeners that want to learn some more. We talked about mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a, a specific plan. Another one is mindfulness-based relapse prevention. And we use that protocol as part of here as part of our extended care for people who are here for a longer periods of time. Uh, is that so that we can help them kind of grow on a, on a deeper level, kind of more advanced therapies? Yeah, it's more advanced. It helps them kind of develop into their program and be get, become more specific about, you know, the, the triggers, the things that create cravings, how they can work with that, how they can change the way they see it. Yeah. Well, very fascinating. Uh, John, do you have any uh, final thoughts about this or any, anything you'd like our listeners to know? Well, I think that anybody can use this. And it's, it's very important to know that it has many applications. We focus on it here because we do addiction treatment and find it very useful. But, you know, there's tons of people in this world who are um, looking for ways to relax, looking for ways to change their lives for the better. And I think this is one of those things that you can look into and practice and, 
include in a daily routine that'll make a difference? Yeah, it starts with a breath. It may include the top of your head yeah. and, a, and a body scan. There's noise all around. Um, being able to really stay quite present in where you are, who you're with, what you're doing. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you much for joining uh, me on our show here. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering Cedar and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. Cedar, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Helping people build a life of recovery. Thank you.